Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, good evening. We're happy to have you all here with us this evening as we continue on in our study of Genesis. Tonight, we're again again going to feel a little ambitious and try and take on four chapters. We'll see if we don't get through all of them, we'll, uh, we'll leave 23 to the end, but our hope is to go... Chapters 20, 21, 22, and 23 this evening. So if you want to grab your Bibles, open those up to chapter 20 in the book of Genesis. Over the course of the last several weeks, we've been going through the life of Abraham. We've seen how God has called him. He called him out of his pagan culture, and he set him apart as his chosen man. In chapters 12 through 18, we see or saw how God established a covenant with Abraham. At that time, his name was Abram. And then ultimately, he changes Abraham and Sarai's names to Abraham and Sarah, and he continually blesses the two of them. And at the same time, Abraham is continuously demonstrating impatience and poor decision-making. However, as his life unfolded, Abraham seemed to grow in his faith and in his relationship with God. In chapter 15, a couple weeks ago, we were given a summary statement of Abraham's relationship with God. In verse 6, we read, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And we see that that faith is what really established the righteousness of Abraham, that relationship that he had. And so for 24 years... Abraham and Sarah followed God, waiting for his promise of a child to be fulfilled. And finally, the Lord showed up and let them know that they only had one more year to wait. This announcement caused Sarah to laugh, if you remember. And then the narrative shifted towards Sodom and Gomorrah, so they were still left waiting. And then last week, we went through chapter 19, where Pastor Kevin talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see there that the Lord continues his conversation with Abraham while the two angels that were with him make their way to the cities. And this conversation showed Abraham's concern for his nephew Lot while also shedding light on the overall wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. We learn that through continual compromise, Lot was now in the midst of sin. But even in this compromised position, he was somehow deemed righteous. And this provided great insight into the grace and mercy of God as he was willing to hold back his wrath to give time for Lot and his family to flee the cities. At the end of chapter 19, we see Abraham returning to where he had met with the Lord and he looks out toward the cities and he sees their desolation. And this brings the narrative back to Abraham and sets up the next stage of his saga. So I'm going to start in chapter 19, verse 27. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land 
which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So again, I mentioned that we're going to try and chapter try and capture four chapters tonight. Uh, In chapter 20, we're going to see Abraham falling back into similar sin. Chapter 1, we're going to finally see the son of promise born. In chapter 22, we get Abraham uh, with this strange command from God to then sacrifice that son of promise. And then in chapter 23, we will cover the death of Sarah. So there's a lot to go through. Chapter 1, or chapter 20, verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from there. And this would just simply be where he was dwelling near the terebinth trees of Mamre, where he had spoken to the Lord and where he had looked out to see those smoking cities. So he, he journeyed from there to the south, and he dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. And now this would be the same area that Hagar had run to when she fled after getting pregnant with Ishmael. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So Abraham, he travels south after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and immediately he falls back into his old nature. He knows that somewhere in the next few months, Sarah would become pregnant because the Lord had told them that a year from now, she was going to have a baby. Yet, as he sets out, he falls into His old habits. See, our old habits can be lifelong shackles if we allow them to remain. So Abraham watches again as a foreign king takes his wife and adds her to his harem. Abimelech desires Sarah, and because of Abraham's repeated deception, he takes her. Abraham's sin and impatience created a threat to God's promise, and he would again have to intercede in order to correct Abraham's mistake. So Abraham who we call the father of faith, is acting faithless. His choice impacted Sarah and their future child, but it also impacted Abimelech and others within his household. This reminds us that even as believers, we can succumb to sin. We must be willing to surrender to the Spirit. Sometimes this surrender is minute by minute, because if we let up, if we allow our flesh a foothold, we end up right where Abraham found himself. And this is why repentance is so important for us. We are to turn away from our sin, not to compromise with it. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. One commentator uh, talking about this said that it is a sad commentary on one's lack of faith if God has to deliver him again and again. The Abraham had fallen into the same sin. And if you notice, it was just one verse that highlights it here. Back in chapter 12, it was developed a little bit more. But you already know the story. We already know the story. He fell into sin because of his ways. So uh, verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So in his dream, Abimelech is having a conversation with God. He points out that he was ignorant to the truth and that even with him being ignorant, he had not touched Sarah. So God reveals to Abimelech that he was actually the reason that he did not sin. Uh, He says the statement, for I withheld you from sinning against me. And then God gives Abimelech instructions on how to handle this situation. God makes it very clear to Abimelech. He says, I know you acted accordingly and that you were lied to, but now that you know the truth, you need to make it right or you and your household are going to die. So it's pretty straightforward. But here we see a contrast, not only in men, but also in how God deals with these men. The contrast of men is we have Abraham. He's a righteous man. He has faith in God. He has a relationship with God, yet he found himself in the midst of sin. And then we have Abimelech. He's a pagan. He worshiped many gods. He didn't have a relationship with the real God, but he was acting with class and honor and integrity. So we have a righteous man caught up in sin being contrasted with an unrighteous man acting rightly. Now notice how God deals with each of them. God doesn't even address Abraham regarding this encounter. We can see through the process that Abraham is met with grace. We can also deduce from previous encounters that there would be some chastening from God, but ultimately God's plan would move forward and Abraham would remain in relationship with him. But God condemns Abimelech. The unrighteous man that had acted accordingly was still condemned. He still faced judgment. In this contrast, we see the works, or we see that works and behaviors mean nothing when it comes to our standing with God. Abraham was righteous because of his faith. Remember Genesis 5:16 that we just talked about. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God will chasten the believer. He will purify us through discipline. The desire of our hearts should be to do rightly and to be spirit-filled. But in those instances, when we do fall into sin, He is still our Father, and we are still His children. Our relationship remains intact. For the unbeliever, regardless of how good they behave, they are still condemned to judgment and death. Verse 8, So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men very, were very much afraid. Notice Abimelech here acted immediately. He understood the urgency in getting the circumstances straight, straightened out. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? Have I offended you, that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? See, Abimelech wants to know why Abraham would have deceived him in this way. In Abimelech's dream, God had identified Abraham as a prophet. And this, again, is the first mention of a prophet in the Bible. But this identification would have let Abimelech know that there was a special relationship or bond between God and Abraham. 
And in verse 11, Abraham said to Abimelech, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. So Abraham's explanation sheds a little light on this situation and on the previous situation we had with Pharaoh. See, this is Abraham's MO, his modus operandi. As a nomad traveling through all of these foreign lands, he found the best way to protect his wife. And really, when we say that, we say the best way to protect himself was to play with this ruse, to present her as his sister. When Isaac uses this same tactic in chapter 26, we see again that God will intervene as he does here on Sarah's behalf. He'll intervene there on Rebecca's behalf. But the question we have to ask as we're reading through this is, what was Abraham's plan A? Like in all of this process, like when he went out to Pharaoh and he wasn't necessarily expecting God to intervene, what was his plan? Just to give up his wife and say, well, see you later. That was a, a good time. You know, he didn't have a, a, a plan A that was ever you know, developed for us to understand. So God intervenes and he intervenes again and then again. And we see this theme as, as we've gone through, and not just in these circumstances, God was intervening through their life consistently throughout all chapters 12 and, uh, through 18. But we see him here intervening again, specifically on Sarah's behalf. So in verse 14, Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. You can almost sense the sarcasm when he says, I gave your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Verse 17, So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So through this conversation, Abimelech rebukes both Abraham and Sarah for their deceitfulness. He then blesses both of them through the giving of gifts and tells Abraham that he can dwell wherever he would like. Then Abraham prays for Abimelech and his household and the curse is lifted. This is a really interesting way to start a relationship. But in the grand picture, if we're just looking at everything, Abraham and Sarah are still waiting for Isaac. But they have a time frame. Somewhere in the next few months, Sarah is going to get pregnant and the child of promise will be here. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham moved to the southern boundary of Canaan and fell back into past sins, showing a familiar theme. That theme that we talked about a couple weeks ago is God remains faithful Abraham and Sarah fell into sin while waiting for God's plan to unfold. So through their impatience, they fall back into old habits and old sins. And we move into chapter 21. Verse 1, it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Now notice both of those phrases. 
As he had said and as he had spoken, God is true to his word. This was done in God's timing. Remember, God's gift of Isaac was miraculous. It needed to be miraculous. It needed to be at a time when it was literally impossible for Sarah to get pregnant on her own. Not only was she barren, but all of her biological systems had stopped working. She was 90 years old. God miraculously opened her womb and he got all of those broken systems up and functioning again. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time. See, this was God's timing all along. This was his plan all along. At the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Now notice the emphasis on Sarah. Sarah is special. She was always part of God's plan. He mentioned her by name to Abraham. He confirmed that it would be through Sarah that she was part of the blessing and she was also a partaker of the blessing. Back in uh, the earlier chapters when Ishmael was born, the idea was that he could maybe be the heir, the son of promise. God made it very, very clear that Sarah was to be a part of this process. And so here we see that. We see the, the finality or the culmination of that promise. Verse 4, Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in this old age. See, Sarah's laughter of disbelief had now been turned into laughter of joy and amazement. And we see in Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12, that it echoes this idea. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you or give thanks to you forever. See, God showed up exactly when he had planned to. God is never late. For 25 years, Abraham and Sarah have waited on the Lord. They knew what he had promised. They knew that he was faithful to keep his promises. But now, in the midst of the miraculous, they have experienced the fulfillment of God's promise. The child of promise had arrived. We're given the climactic joy at the time of Isaac's birth. But can you imagine the nine months of pregnancy that led up to this? They had to be some of the best times of their marriage, even though she was 90 years old and pregnant. Sarah was filled with all kinds of joy and excitement, and any time she started to feel sick or she wanted to complain about swollen ankles or any other ailments, Abraham just had to remind her that this is exactly where she's wanted to be her entire life. So basically you could say to her, woman, you wanted this, now deal with it. I'm joking, obviously. But in all seriousness, 25 years of waiting, 25 years of waiting on the Lord had given them 25 years of blessing. The birth of Isaac was the cherry on top, but they had walked with God for 25 years, being solely dependent on him. 
the visions, the conversations, the grace, the mercy, the love, those were all part of the process. They had been truly blessed throughout that entire process. The joy that was being expressed wasn't just because of the birth of their son. The joy was being, that was being expressed was a culmination of everything that God had done for them. Trusting God's promises not only gives you a blessing at the end, but it gives you a blessing while you are waiting. As believers, we need to keep this in mind. Our joy comes through the process of life, not just at the end of our lives. We don't simply look ahead to the kingdom and our kingdom inheritance. Our joy is supposed to be here and now. Our joy comes from God's consistency. It comes from His faithfulness. We won't find joy if we look to the world. We won't find joy if we look to ourselves. We only find joy when we do what Abraham did back in chapter 15, when God took him out of the tent and told him to look up. We find our joy when we look up, when we look to God. Nehemiah 8.10 tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The last thing here in this portion of verses for us to be reminded of is that our joy cannot be stolen. No one can take your joy from you. Satan does not have dominion over your joy. Now you can give it away. You surely can give it away. But nobody can take it. See, Paul speaks of being content in all circumstances in Philippians 4.11. James speaks of being able to count all trials as joyous occasions in James 1.1. When our eyes are set on God, joy should be overflowing as, as we see here with Abraham and Sarah, uh, Sarah. Joy can't be taken if it's true joy found through God. Verse 8, So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. This would have happened potentially around the time Isaac was three. There's different views on this, possibly even all the way up to age 10 or 12. But it's more than likely this was a, about a, a two or three year old um, time where the weaning process was completed. It's important to remember, we don't get a whole lot of Isaac's childhood. And most of the events of his life are just kind of snapshots we jump ahead to one snapshot, then we jump ahead to the next one, and we see through his life just some specific details. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So this text seems to suggest that this event is happening around the celebration of Isaac being weaned. And if that's the case, Ishmael would have been around 16 or 17 years old. Remember, he was 13 when he was circumcised. 
And then Isaac was born a year later, and at the time of the celebration, Isaac could have been two or three, so that puts Ishmael somewhere around 16 or 17 years old. And this helps keep the situation in context. So at this point, Ishmael is really a man-child, and Isaac is a toddler. So you have a man-child, a 16 or 17-year-old, in essence, bullying a two or three-year-old here. God has promised to bless both Isaac and Ishmael because they are both Abraham's sons. But God makes it very clear that his covenant is only through Isaac. He is the son of promise. Later on, God will reference Isaac as Abraham's only son, seeming to forget all about Ishmael. And that's significant. See, God blesses Ishmael, but because he was born through sin, he didn't even recognize him as a legitimate son of Abraham. God tells Abraham that he will take care of Ishmael, but that Abraham needed to send him away. This time he needed to heed the voice of his wife. You can imagine the hesitancy with Abraham. Last time he listened to her, he got Hagar pregnant, and that led to all of this nonsense. So he probably, well, not probably, he went to the Lord afterwards. He's like, this is what my wife's saying. Do I really want to follow it? And God said, yes, this time you you can heed her words and you should cast them out. So like many portions of the Old Testament, this event serves as an illustration in the New Testament. Paul speaks of this event. He even quotes Sarah in Galatians 4, 21-31. You want to flip there, I'm going to read 10 verses. So if you want to follow along, Galatians 4, starting in, chapter, in verse 21. Paul is writing, he says, Tell me who you desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at Excuse me, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. There's the quote from Sarah. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul allegorizes the relationship between Sarah and Hagar and the relationship between Isaac and Ishmael so that we as believers have a better understanding of the contrast between law and grace and the contrast between flesh and spirit. Hagar represents Mount Sinai and the old Jerusalem. These are allusions to the law, while Sarah represents new Jerusalem as an allusion to freedom. Ishmael is the son born under the law and represents the flesh, while Isaac was the son of promise, born in the Spirit, and as such represents the freedom believers have in the Spirit. One represented bondage at Sinai, the other freedom when the promise finally came. 
When Christ the seed came, the old was done away. Now that the promise has come, believers are co-heirs with the promised seed by adoption through God's grace. To go back under the law would be to undo the fulfillment of God's promise. Those adopted by the seed became seeds and are set free from the bondage of the law. Just as Ishmael and Isaac were in conflict, so the flesh and the spirit do not harmonize. The flesh struggles against the spirit, often mocking it. Therefore, believers are to get rid of the slave woman and her son. That is, we are to remove the threat of the flesh and to live by the spirit. After Paul explains the allegory, he tells the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 1, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in the slavery of the law. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. If you remember from earlier verses, Abraham had moved to the area where Hagar had fled. So in essence, she's going right back to the same wilderness at this point that she was in the first time she fled. And the water, it, and the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bowshot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite of him and lifted her voice and wept. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for the Lord has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. As we're reading through this, you can see there, there's several references to boy and lad, and, and sometimes that's what kind of throws maybe a false image in our minds. We call it the Sunday school image, where we're still looking at, at Ishmael here and Isaac later on as small boys, small children. But remember, in this instance, this boy or this lad is 16 or 17 years old. So she's setting him apart. She's expecting him to die. Hagar has uh, forgotten some of the things that God had even told her. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes. This could have been supernatural, meaning that she was spiritually blinded to the well that we're going to see here. Or it could have been that God was simply changing the point of her focus. So she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And here we have what seems to be the, the wrap up of the narrative of Ishmael and Hagar. There are references to them throughout the old other books of the Bible, but this is the conclusion of their recorded history. Their lives were difficult. They were placed in circumstances that they didn't choose, and people dealt with them in unfair ways. But God dealt with them through grace. He dealt with them through love and mercy. He provided. If you remember, Hagar named him the God who sees. He saw their needs. 
he heard their cries and he blessed them. So verse 22, it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now this Abimelech here, some commentators would suggest that it's a different one from uh, in chapter 20. Uh, Abimelech is a title, kind of like Pharaoh, not a name. Uh, I tend to think that it is the same one uh, based on some of the, the narrative and things that are going on, but he, neither here nor there, really. It could be the same one or a different one. It's a ruler who's now coming to do some business with Abraham. Now therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. Verse 24, And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs on the flock by them, of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So after Abraham sent Ishmael away, he had more dealings with Abimelech. Abimelech recognized that Abraham was truly blessed by his God, and Abimelech wanted to remain on the right side of things, so he sought a treaty with Abraham. Abraham is open to this treaty, but he needs to rebuke Abimelech regarding a well, and part of the negotiation then is to have that well returned to Abraham. The purpose of an actual treaty, I think, is actually a callback to chapter 20. Abimelech, if it's the same one as in chapter 20, understands that Abraham walks with God, but he also understands that Abraham isn't always truthful or trustworthy. So this is an unfortunate part of Abraham's testimony that unfortunately stuck with him. James Strahan says, A bad man's example has little influence over good men, but the bad example of a good man Eminent in station and established in reputation has an enormous power for evil. Our sin can sometimes overshadow our walk. Our sin can sometimes blemish our testimony. <clears throat> so the last thing to note here before we move on is how Abraham acknowledges God after establishing this relationship with Abimelech. He planted a tree as a sign of remembrance and God gave and gave God a new name, El Olam, the everlasting God. <clears throat> Wells and trees and altars are a part of Abraham's life. All along the way, he was establishing things to remember God by. 
Then we move to chapter 22. Verse 1, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son. See, Isaac, or um, here he doesn't even acknowledge Ishmael. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We as the readers know from this very first verse that this is only a test. God clearly lays that out. But Abraham doesn't necessarily know that. Here's what Abraham does know. He's walked with God now for more than 35 years. God has promised him many, many things. God is extremely slow in fulfilling His promises, but He is faithful in fulfilling His promises. God has promised children from Isaac, and that hasn't happened yet. Therefore, if He sacrificed Isaac, God would have to do something miraculous in order to fulfill His promise. See, I believe that Abraham didn't know what exactly was going on, but he anticipated that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he was to sacrifice him. He knew that somehow God would intervene to fulfill his promise. If there's one lesson that Abraham learned over the course of these decades, it is to be obedient to God. God made promises that sacrificing his son seemed to contradict. Those details ultimately were for God to sort out. Abraham just needed to remain faithful and obedient. Notice the phrase, whom you love. This is the first use of the word love in the Bible. And it's used to describe the relationship between a father and his only begotten son. Going back to the rule of first mention, we talked about a couple weeks ago, we should find that statement significant. Our minds hopefully immediately go to John 3.16 where we learn of another father giving up his only begotten son. And as we move forward in this chapter, I want you to keep John 3.16 in mind as the events of this chapter unfold because they're foreshadowing of this other instance where a father sacrifices his son on the mountains of Moriah. So verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering (coughs) and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So we have four men headed out on a journey. They're traveling for three days, and then they come to the place where God had told them to go. This narrative is interesting because Moses provides a lot of detail. Abraham gets up early. He saddled his donkey. He splits some firewood. He gathers up other men, and then he heads out. These are all kind of mundane tasks, and they all get labeled as part of the process. There's no mention of anxiety or worry. There's no mention of Abraham forgetting or being sidetracked. Abraham is obedient. He seems to have a clear head. And if he is experiencing any negative emotions, he doesn't let on to those. 
When they get to the base of the mountains of Moriah, Abraham says two profound things. He and Isaac are going up to the mountain to worship God. And this is the first mention of worship in the Bible. While it was the first mention, everyone that was present seemed to understand what Abraham meant. He and Isaac were going to go up the mountain. They were going to build an an altar. They were going to offer a burnt offering on that altar. And then they were going to come back down the mountain. And that's the second profound thing that Abraham said. He said, we will come back to you. There was no hesitation here again that Isaac would not be coming back with him. Abraham knew at this point, he had learned his lessons, that Isaac was the son of promise and all of the covenantal blessings were going to come through him. So here's the lesson for us. Abraham had moved past the point where he needed an explanation. Abraham was now willing to live on the promises of God instead of demanding explanations from God. And this is what walking by faith looks like. We get to the place in our lives where we no longer need God to explain things for us. We simply cling to the promises that He has given us and we walk by faith in those promises knowing that He will fulfill them. So verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Abraham and Isaac prepared to make their way up the mountain. Isaac is carrying the wood. Abraham is carrying the fire and the knife. Over time, Isaac starts to notice that there isn't a lamb for the burnt offering, so he asks Abraham. Abraham's response demonstrates his level of faith. See, after all these years, he finally understands God will provide. And in these three verses, the phrase went together is repeated twice. And it means that Abraham and Isaac were in agreement. Think of the New Testament idea of being in one accord. Isaac didn't have all of the details, but he was in sync with his father. They were going and doing this journey together. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham builds an altar. And then he begins to bind his son, tying up his arms and his legs. He restrains him and he lays him on the altar on top of all of the wood. And Isaac doesn't resist. He doesn't try to talk Abraham out of it. He's still in agreement with his father. He is submitted to this course of action. We aren't told about Isaac's faith in this narrative, but we begin to imagine the lessons that he has learned through the first several years of his life. See, Isaac 
again, more than likely wasn't a small child at this point either. Commentators often will argue about his age. They give ranges from 18 to 30 years old. Again, I personally suspect that he was around 30. Uh, so he was culturally the age of a man. Uh, and he was aware of what was happening. And he was willing to submit out of love for his father. So this wasn't Isaac's test. So we aren't given many details about him. But it was Abraham's test. And we learn a great deal about him. <clears throat> this was a test of discipleship. God had given Abraham the joy of a child, the answer to all of his prayers, the son of promise. Was Abraham willing to give all of that up to continue to serve God? See, God didn't learn anything from this test. He already knew. But Abraham learned a great deal about his own faith in God. God was showing Abraham that the answer to his prayer could not become more valuable than his relationship with God. And I want to say that one again because this is significant. God was showing Abraham that the answer to his prayer could not become more important than his relationship with God. If it became more important, then that answer to prayer just becomes an idol that he's put in place of God. It's the same message that Jesus relayed in Luke 14, 26, when he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't promoting hatred in this statement. He's promoting correct alignment in who and in how we are to love. And the bottom line is, God comes first. So Abraham learned that he was willing to put God above everyone else. He learned that he was devoted to serving God regardless of the cost. And this is a great place for us to then begin to reflect. Have we placed the gifts of God higher than God? Have we become so focused on the blessings that he's given us that we have lost sight of who he is? and what he is still doing have we become so focused on what god is doing that we have missed what he is teaching verse 13 abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns and this is the idea of a substitutionary ram you can find this in Le Leviticus 9, Exodus 29, and Numbers 5. It's another point where we see the law in full view well before it was written. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And we know this name of God is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will see to it, or the Lord will provide. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba. 
and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. <coughs> Excuse me. So God recaps his covenant with Abraham, and he touches on every point. So we can go back through chapter 12 and 13 and 15 and 18 and all the way through, and everywhere he speaks on it, he's readdressing each one of those elements. He's reestablishing that covenant coming through Isaac. This event is prophetic in nature. It all alludes to Christ, and it alludes to him willingly being sacrificed to atone for the sins of the world. We can see several parallels between these two events, but it's important to remember that that parallel is not uh, replacing this as a literal event. This is an actual event that happened. Abraham and Isaac were there, and this whole thing did take place. Abraham demonstrates that following God, remaining faithful to God, can sometimes bring with it great cost. Abraham remained faithful, and ultimately God provided. The prophetic elements are beautiful, and we could spend an entire evening going through the parallels, but what we really need to come away with here tonight is that God is faithful. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac, and he is faithful to each one of us. Then we transition away from that portion and in verse 20 we get the family of uh, Nahor now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham saying indeed Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor Huz his firstborn Buzz his brother that's just great Huz and Buzz Kemuel the father of Aram Chesed Hazo Pildash Jidlaf and Bethuel and Bethuel begot Rebekah these eight Milcah bore to Nahor Abraham's brother his concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, and Macha. So these last few verses here in chapter 22 are actually setting up primarily the events of chapter 24. Abraham learns that his brother had had a bunch of children, and this knowledge will set his plan in motion to find Isaac a wife. It also ties us into the next chapter in 23, because as I mentioned, chapter 23, we're going to read in just a minute, is where where Sarah dies, and Abraham does not take her back to his family to bury her. He stays in the land that God has given, and he buries her there, and we'll see that here in just a minute. But an interesting note as we move into chapter 23, Isaac will not be mentioned again until Genesis 24 verse 62 if you notice uh, just a a few verses back in in verse 19 he wasn't mentioned as he came as abraham came down the mountain and met his uh, servants there he wasn't mentioned traveling home he's not mentioned at all in chapter 23 when his mother dies so he's not mentioned again in until genesis 24 verse 62 and that's something that will be picked up with next week so chapter 23 verse 1 sarah lived 127 years these were the years of the life of sarah so sarah died in kirjath arba that is hebron in the land of canaan and abraham came to mourn for sarah and to weep for her here we see the first tears of the bible abraham grieved and wept when his wife died. 
You think back through all the events of their life together, the relationship they had, the love they shared, the mistakes they made, the blessings they received. This was a marriage devoted to God, a marriage that demonstrated God's love, that demonstrated His grace and His mercy. Abraham had lost his helpmate, and so he cried. Sarah has been honored through the pages of Scripture. She's mentioned in Hebrews 11, the the hall of faith. Peter uses her as an example for wives to follow. Paul, again, used her as a metaphor for grace. And she's the only woman to have her age, death, and burial all recorded in Scripture. She wasn't without her issues, but but she has been honored throughout the whole of human history because of her relationship with God. Verse 3, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Verse 7, Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. Verse 17, So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. It's a really long-winded narrative of a negotiation. So Abraham is negotiating with Ephron for a particular cave that he wants to bury Sarah in. Ephron wants to sell the surrounding land as well, and so he offers an above-market-value price of 400, 400 shekels. But Abraham is pressed for time because he needs to bury the body 
So he's willing to pay more than what the land is actually worth. And so they work out this negotiation and Abraham gives him the 400 shekels, gets the cave that he wanted, and then all of the surrounding land as well. So Abraham was given this cave that would ultimately become his family burial site. Through the rest of Genesis, we learn that Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah are all buried at this location. And this is the only piece of land that Abraham will ever possess. He was promised the land of Canaan, but the only land he ever owned was the burial site for his family. Abraham's descendants are still waiting to fully possess the land that they were promised. See, through these chapters, we've seen several things. We saw that old habits die hard as Abraham fell into past sins. We see that God remained faithful and provided the son of promise. We saw that our sons, or excuse me, that our answers to our prayers cannot replace God, our provider. And we saw that a, a life lived for God is a life to be honored. So as the narrative of Abraham is now winding down, we've seen a faith that has been represented well. Abraham has learned to fully rely on the Lord. He has learned to be patient when God promises something. He has learned that God is the provider. He has learned that God is the everlasting. He has learned that God is the God Almighty. And He is the God Most High. Abraham walked with God. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together. Thank you.